Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined once again by my lovely wife, Yanni, and John Suarez from the Center for a Free Cuba, uh, based out of Miami, Florida. Really appreciate everyone tuning in. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, the best way to support the show is send me some health insurance referrals. I do about equal amounts of business right now in the state of Florida as I do here in my my home state, which is Kentucky. So if you're in Florida or Kentucky, you need any help with group health insurance. I'm an independent broker, can get you the best plan. Also Medicare, uh, any type of Medicare plan and individual insurance under the age of 65. So send me some health insurance referrals. The details for the sponsor of the Kelly, the sponsors of the Kelly Patrick Show are as follows. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treatment anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am once again joined by my lovely wife, Yanni. Yanni, how are you today? Good. How are you? Doing very well. Appreciate you coming back on. And we are very excited to have via the Louisville Combat Academy Roadcaster line. Once again, we have John Suarez from Miami. John is a human rights activist and advocate for ordered liberty via nonviolence. Um, he is, and I apologize, John, if I get this wrong, but the director of the Center for a Free Cuba? Correct. Okay. Uh, John, we really appreciate you coming back on the show. Of course, this is a very hot button topic for Yanni and uh, many other Cubans uh, across the United States and really across the world. Uh, but I think it's important for even people who are not connected to Cuba at all to keep this type of a topic in mind. And John, I really appreciate you you coming back on the show today. Thank you for having me. Um, we have multiple issues we're going to get to today. Um, but, and I want to say Yanni's first language, of course, is Spanish. She's very fluent in English, but for some of the questions, um, I think she may defer to having me read them. I think Yanni, do you have any questions you'd like to start with? I know you prepared some very thoughtful questions relative to 
the island of Cuba and your family. Uh, but you tell me, do you have any questions you'd like to jump in with? Um, yeah. So the first question I thought it was uh, um, about what is happening in Matanzas. Uh, and it is, uh, if you, what, what do you think about the oil tank uh, fire? Like if it's being actually caused by um, the lightning, how the government said, or do you think it was something else like human error or sabotage? Okay, so was it government negligence a la maybe Chernobyl with the, the Soviet Union, something right. like that? Is the government who screwed it up or is their official narrative um, believable in your eyes, John? Well, I think it's, it's important to underscore what happened. Uh, on August 5th, the official explanation is that lightning struck a Matanza super tanker base in Cuba, erupting a uncontrolled blaze that engulfed four tanks at the storage facility over a period of uh, four days before it started to be gotten under control. I think that it points to uh, incompetence, a lack of controls, uh, we also know that they sent in inexperienced firefighters, which uh, many have died, and they've been very slow to identify them. Um, so I, I think it's a demonstration that this is a failed state. Okay, and that's nothing new. So that's, of course, consistent with, um, you know, the, the entirety of the, what is it, 63 years <laughs> Of, of the Castro regime. Um, coincidentally, today, Yanni, do you know what today's date represents? No. August 13th is Fidel Castro's oh, yeah, birthday. His birthday. Did you know that? You did know it. You just didn't yeah, think of I it. Just don't you think were raised about it in Cuba. Uh, for those of our listeners who don't know, Yanni lived in Cuba until 2014. In Cuba, did they kind of ingrain it? They celebrate it every August 13th. It's a party. John, should we be celebrating Fidel Castro's birthday? No. Uh, talking about a, a disaster for the Cuban nation was the, the birth of this dictator who promised to restore democracy uh, in 1953 at his trial after engaging in a terrorist attack in a military barracks and delivered uh, 63 years of dictatorship and uh, divided families and tens of thousands of Cubans murdered. So, no, nothing to celebrate. Hmm. Okay. Um and my interview style, John, is kind of ADD. I bounce all over the place, so I apologize if it's not the most structured episode ever. But would you say the current regime, of course, Miguel Diaz-Canal is the face of the regime. Uh, some say Raul Castro is still in large part in charge. But would you say this is simply an extension of the Fidel Castro regime? Yes, it is. It, it is... Uh, Everyone recognizes that the figure that remains in charge behind the scenes is uh, Raul Castro, and the disaster uh, that's unfolding has, has been on his watch. I think one thing that's important to point out, however, is that Raul Castro's plan was to have his former son-in-law, a general by the name of Lopez Calleja, um, who was running things behind the scenes, but it was looking like he was going to be replacing Diaz-Canel, who was going to be a scapegoat for some of the bad press that got in over the last year. But he died uh, a couple months ago. So we think that's something that's been a, a very tough blow for the dictatorship and their succession plans. Now, when someone dies in the Cuban government... Oftentimes, I hear from Yanni and other local Cubans like, oh, I'm sure that was air quotes, 
natural causes or, you know, something like that. Do we really think this was a, a, uh, um, a death by natural causes or are there any reasons to think there was foul play? Well, there have been a number of generals who have died. Many of them were elderly, but some of them were young. And, and there, there has been speculation that some of them were killed for not following out orders to repress during the July 11th protest. We know also that there were cases of police officers when they were ordered to uh, fire on crowds, join with the crowds as well. And we imagine their fate was also not a very healthy one. But in the case of Lopez Calleja, um, the belief is he was somebody who was being groomed by Raul Castro. So it's highly unlikely that his death was an induced death in this case. And it seems that he was suffering from lung cancer and had been un undergoing treatments. One of the things that circulated following his death was that one of the main doctors that was attending to him uh, had an unfortunate <laughs> death. So there was speculation that he was killed for having failed to save Mr. Lope, uh, General Lopez Calleja. Wow. Okay. And John, before we started recording today, I asked if there's a summary of things we should touch on. And you, you mentioned something that I, I found to be fascinating. And I, I don't want to butcher what you said, um, but you said something along the lines of that it's important for our listeners to know that the struggle uh, within the island currently and over the, the past however many years is in large part due to a blockade enforced by the Cuban government, not the blockade from the United States. Did I understand what you said correctly? Well, there, there is no blockade from the U.S. The U.S. has economic sanctions that target the Cuban military and dictatorship. While uh, since at least the year 2000, uh, agricultural businesses in the United States and pharmaceutical businesses have been selling uh, tons of products to the Cuban government. It is only the Cuban government that they're allowed to sell to by the Cuban government. Okay. So, so but yes, there is an internal, there is, the Cuban regime remains a hardcore communist dictatorship that has centralized all type of production. And as we saw in the case of Mao's China or the Soviet Union under Lenin and Stalin, that when you have that type of centralized economic control, both on the uh, uh, agricultural side and the commercial side, that leads to great scarcity. In the case of China, there were huge famines provoked by Mao's communist economic policies. And in the case of Cuba, Cuba that had been a country that was able to feed its own people and export food is now a country that imports uh, 70 to 80 percent of its food. Why is that? Because farmers are not permitted to sell directly to Cubans. It, they have to sell their products to a government entity called Inacopio, and in typical communist efficiency, uh, ha over half of the of the crops rot on the vine, waiting for the acopios to pick up their their product their produce. Have there been adjustments made over the sixty three years of communism in Cuba when it comes to um, Cuban citizens, whether it's fishing or um, you know, farming and selling to each other, things like that. Have there been periods where it's allowed and they allow the free market to come into play, of course, a, a little bit? That's really how you, you uh, uh, result in an efficient 
exchange of goods uh, via voluntary exchange as you, you kind of open things up. Has that happened over the past 63 years to any well, degree? The same, in, in the same way that Lenin in the 1920s in the Soviet Union had his new economic policy, when the, when the communists enforce their policy fully, it endangers their continued rule because they're not able to feed their people. So what they'll do is they'll have small openings to generate enough to get over the crisis, and then they shut down again. And we've seen that same pattern in Cuba. In the 1980s, they opened up farmers markets in a moment of crisis. Then when that crisis passed, they shut it down. Again, in the early 90s, when there was another crisis with the disappearance of the Soviet Union, again, they opened up farmers markets. They allowed... Uh, limited exchanges, and when that crisis passed, it shut down. And that was done by under, under Fidel Castro's watch. What's been interesting is that with Raul Castro and with Diaz-Canel, it seems that they've been a bit more orthodox. And during the pandemic, rather than doing what Fidel Castro had done in the past, which was to open things up, um, in fact, they tightened things up and made it more difficult to get goods and products into the country by through the black market or the gray market, through mules that would come in by plane from Jamaica, Haiti, Panama, um, and obviously the United States. They shut that all down, so it meant that there was much less products available for Cubans to purchase at the same time that obviously they were allowing the dollars to flow in uh, during that period of time. And then last year, they made an announcement that there were no longer, that they were a flood in dollars and that they were no longer going to accept dollars. And the Cubans had a, a limited period of time to turn their dollars in. And the speculation by uh, some Cuban economists was that they were doing that to scare Cubans that were hoarding dollars. Uh, to get those dollars into the hands of the government. And effectively, a year after they announced that policy, they once again opened up uh, the uh, formal channels to receive dollars after claiming they had an overabundance, which, of course, was not true. Okay. Um, I think it's very common here in the United States for many United States citizens, myself included, to be very naive about many topics. And what I mean by that is, um, what was it, Yanni? You said to me a couple months ago, and I sounded very, very naive. I did not mean to. Yanni was telling me that one of her friends in Cuba had told a story of how her young daughter or son. Yeah. What so was my it? My sister told me that her, her um, friend was telling a story about his, her son, little kid. I think he was like, he is six years old mm -hmm. and they're taking you know the with the, all the energy crisis of they're taking the electricity for like eight hours a day so at night oftentimes day. they don't have any air you know they don't have any yeah. air conditioning for starters but they have no electricity at night no opportunity to run a fan in their house it's of course very hot and humid on the so island kid. and i was like well yanni i've heard of starvation yeah. and killings and stuff and i was like to be honest with you Compared to the starvation and the murders and the, the uh, imprisonment and things like that, that just doesn't sound as uh, disturbing to me. It just didn't. I was trying to be honest. I don't want to come across like I automatically can relate to everything. If I don't, you know, I want to be honest. And Yanni, of course, was um, 
not satisfied with my response and explained to me that while she lived in Cuba, of course, she left in 2014, oftentimes overnight, if the government decides to shut off the electricity and you have a kid and it's so hot that they're laying there naked and they're sweating because there's no, you You know, fan or anything, you have to sit there. You can't sleep yourself, but you're worried about your kid. You have to be fanning your kid off. Um, So I, I guess... Uh, there's just, uh, it's easy to be naive. Of course, I'm guilty myself uh, of being very naive to this, but I think it's important for people listening, non-Cubans, to understand there is what's called a, a, an energy crisis that's been going on in, in Cuba for a very long time. John, uh, how would you describe that energy, energy crisis? What's going on? And has it gotten more, it sounds like it has. There are a lot of protests it's, it's right got now, a, It's too. gotten worse. Okay. And yeah. it's been, and it's going to be a lot worse now after this fire in Matanzas. But the reason it's such a disaster is that the regime has not invested in its electrical infrastructure. So the uh, plants that should be generating electricity are collapsing. And the other thing, which is uh, counterintuitive, considering this is a communist dictatorship and they claim that they're for equality, is that they also have been giving preference to their uh, four- and five-star hotels, which are run by the Cuban military, uh, GAESA conglomerate. So you'll see where the residential neighborhoods are pitch black, and then there are these uh, towers of light, uh, which are the which are these hotels, these high-rises built by the military, and they can continue to have electricity. And to add insult to injury, these well-lit hotels are oftentimes empty because the tourism has collapsed because of the pandemic. And I imagine also the bad press from Matanzas with the toxic clouds will also have a negative impact on tourism to the island. But the regime has been, uh, not only with regards to electricity, but also the housing. Uh, You have buildings collapsing in Havana and other parts of Cuba due to a lack of upkeep at the same time that the regime is going on a building spree for these uh, hotels. Yeah. So uh, once again, I think it's really difficult for us here in the United... I was born in Ohio. I've lived a relatively sheltered life, um, as I assume many people listening have. So I think it's difficult to really understand how important it is just to just to have electricity 24 hours a day in your house. And, and John, you're saying that they... Um, are pumping the little electricity they do have, of course, into their high-ranking government officials. They, they don't go without. Um, but also into the revenue-generating tourism uh, industry. So very fascinating that, that it's... Uh, uh, in its, the, oh, I'm sorry. But there is a, but there is a question uh, due to the communist efficiency, quote-unquote, of how much revenue is being generated if you have these high-rise hotels that don't have tourists have electricity pumped into them. And I also think it's paradoxical that in the capitalist United States, for example, during the height of the COVID uh, pandemic in places like uh, Minneapolis, and I think also in California and other places, some governments decided uh, to house their homeless in hotels since people weren't uh, traveling due to tourism. Uh, rather than have people out on the street homeless, they, they brought them into hotels and then paid the the hotel owners, the Cuban military hotels have not done that. So you have people with homes that are literally collapsing, people in the street, and they don't have any place to go. 
You said there are empty hotels. You said there are homes that are literally collapsing. That's another interesting topic Yanni has told me about. It's very common in Cuba for someone to live in an apartment building. They have a nice or a relatively nice little place to stay. And then just one day out of nowhere, the building collapses. John, how, how common? I wouldn't say that they, the, those buildings are nice. They're not. Okay. But relative, they have a roof over their head. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but they, they frequently, coll- am I exaggerating, Yanni? They collapse. They're, oh, shit, the roof just yeah, came in. Yeah, because they're very old, and they don't have any. And they don't upkeep them. There's no yeah. uh, uh, infrastructure for those types of things. John, uh, what is that all about? Communist centralized economic planning. <laughs> yeah, that's they, the answer. They have control. Yeah, they, they do not, there are no private markets. You have to get supplies to be able to upkeep the buildings from the government. The government doesn't provide the supplies. So over decades, the buildings uh, decay and decline and start collapsing. And it's a systematic problem. At the same time that you have these individuals uh, in the military building brand new hotels for tourism that in many cases uh, is not arriving over the last few years. John, you've mentioned tourism a few times, and Yanni, you may know the answer to this better than, um, than I do also, but a uh, question for both of you. If an American right now wanted to travel to Cuba for a vacation, could they? Um, sure. Legally, they shouldn't, unless they're going to be doing something as part of a people-to-people exchange through some sort of study. If it's just straight-up tourism, the U.S. embargo says that Americans should not be doing that. Why? Because the tourism industry is run by GAESA, which is a military conglomerate, and that money will be going to the repressive actors in the island. Okay. Um, but, in Yanni, of course, you've, we've given up on hopes to go, to go to Cuba unless the, the yeah. communist regime falls. We were considering it a couple years ago. Uh, and I think technically I could have gotten in because I'm your husband. Yeah, but I I spoke out. Yanni so spoke can't. out too I, much I, now. She doesn't want to go to jail. Risk. Yeah, she's not interested in going back there and risking being put into a a, 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 a cell knows? for the, John. Do you think realistically, if someone like Yanni who's spoken out on social media and, and of course podcast platforms such as this one were to go back to Cuba right now, they would uh, you know come up with some. Uh, maybe bullshit charges and put her in jail for something. Um, they could. They could also have her have an accident, or have you have an accident. There was a case of a Cuban woman who married a Canadian diplomat and moved to Canada, and then she tried to return to Cuba, and they didn't allow her in the first time, and she made a stink, and it came out in the media, and then a few years later, she went back to Cuba with her son. And her son went out to take pictures, and the next time she saw him was on a slab in the morgue. Oh, God. No, no real explanation. There's not much accountability, it sounds like. And he was quickly cremated, so they couldn't do an independent autopsy. Oh, my yeah. goodness. That's God. how they work. Very yeah. shady. Yeah, I have no... That does not sound appealing to put, put ourselves in other, that, that type of situation. The, the other thing that's been interesting also is that there have been Cuban... Uh, dissident artists, like the case of Anameli Ramos, a Cuban art professor, Omaru Giola, who uh, traveled outside of Cuba, Cuban nationals, they don't have any other citizenship, and they tried to return to Cuba, um, Anameli in February, and Omara in late June, early July. 
and they were denied uh, the right to return to their country uh, by the airlines. In the case of Banameli Ramos, it was American Airlines, and in the case of Omada, Southwest Airlines. And it was because a colonel uh, sent the airlines a list of people who could not travel, and that included these two Cuban nationals. So would they be considered stateless now? Stateless because they're, they're state not a citizen state. anywhere? Right. Well, they no, no, they are Cuban citizens. They're just not allowed in, into Cuba. To go back. Yeah. Oh, but they live here. They're they're here, but they don't have any status. Oh, okay. Other than being a Cuban citizen who's not able to go into Cuba. Right. Wow. Um, John, I worked in banks for, for many years, and I knew when I opened up a checking account for a Mexican, I had to make sure we had certain documentation, and it was always kind of iffy as to whether or not we could open an account. Okay. But if it was a Cuban, everybody in the banking industry always knew, oh, you don't need to worry. They have special, you know, special statuses. Are those special, I don't, I guess special privileges with the United States um, immigration process. Do those still exist? Well, could you summarize, John? What is it I'm describing and do they still exist? Well, I mean, frankly, if I guess if you're talking about a Cuban migrant, is what you're referring to? Um, yes, I believe so. Anyone here in Louisville, Kentucky, who, who recently got here from Cuba? Um, that's That would be in reference with the Cuban Adjustment Act, which the principle was that when a Cuban touched American soil within a year and a day, they would get residency. That law exists nominally, but has been weakened over the years, first by the Clinton administration and later by the Obama administration. So there have been a, a large increase in the number of Cubans deported back to Cuba. But for the most part, uh, once they have a, uh, the standing to be able to remain on American territory, they are able to uh, get the Cuban Adjustment Act and within a year and a day have a uh, residency. And in that case, that's where the bank would be uh, not as concerned as it would be with Mexico, with the likelihood of a Mexican migrant being uh, undocumented. The On the other side of it, Cuba is on the list of state sponsors of terrorism. So anything with the name Cuba in it, uh, banks do have an incredible amount of scrutiny that they wouldn't have with, let's say, a uh, business counterpart with the, having the name Mexico in it, for example. And I can tell you that because the Center for a Free Cuba, we've had to do wires or wires of people have tried to bring wires in. We've had to go through a very elaborate process with, with the banks. John, I know we covered this last time you were on the podcast with me, but before, and we've got multiple questions still we're sitting on, but before we go any further, could you give our listeners a little bit of a summary? What is the Center for Free Cuba? I know you did last time, but how long has it been, has it been around and what's the, the goal with the Center for Free Cuba? It's been around for 25 years. Uh, it was organized by a number of scholars, diplomats, business people, uh, mostly Cubans, but not all Cubans, uh, folks like uh, Mary Louise Horowitz, Ambassador Ted Briggs, uh, are you know, founding members of the board. Um, and essentially, the goal has been to restore the rule of law and, and democracy to, to Cuba. 
And that's been the mission for 25 years. The center was founded in 1997. Okay. Um, the next question I was thinking of is, there are some Cubans, I'm trying to observe here from my seat here in Louisville, Kentucky, I see, you know, somewhat a good number of Cubans here. There are some Cubans, and Yanni, you correct me, that believe that Obama did good things for Cubans in America and that Trump ruined some of that. What, what is the, the, the uh, uh, is there a false narrative out there, John? And really, what did Obama and Trump do different for Cubans in America, uh, Cuban-Americans? It is a false narrative that you can see by the voting patterns of Cuban Americans. Obama did well in, in 2008 and 2012 relative to some other Democrats in the Cuban community. But when he did the opening with the dictatorship with Raul Castro in 2014, uh, the voting patterns among Cuban Americans shifted dramatically against Democrats. And the reason was that Obama's opening in 2014 uh, first uh, released Cuban uh, spies that had murdered Cuban Americans. Uh, one of them now is in charge of the one of them is in charge of spying on Cubans across the island. Gerardo Hernandez, who was serving a double life sentence, one of them for murder conspiracy and the murders of Carlos Costa, Mario de la Peña, uh, Mando Alejandre, and Pablo Morales, who were blown out of the sky on February 24th, 1996, when they were engaged in search and rescue for rafters. Um, that, that was something Mr. Obama did. The second thing that he did in 2015 was to take Cuba off the list of state sponsors of terrorism, which in addition to rewarding bad behavior because the Cuban regime continues to promote terrorism abroad, stripped Cuban, Cubans of the ability to sue the dictatorship in American courts. So that, that stripped Cubans of that ability. And then in January of 2017, on his way out, he did two other things that were horrific for Cubans. One, he ended wet foot, dry foot, which was a, a further curtailment of the Cuban Adjustment Act, which was that when Cubans fled, if they reached U.S. land, they automatically uh, could get residency in a year to a day. So under with Obama's um, elimination of wet foot, dry foot, that increased dramatically the number of Cubans deported to the dictatorship. And secondly, he ended at the same time a program uh, that provided asylum to trafficked Cuban doctors in third countries. So the regime, one of their uh, main areas of um, funds is that they export doctors around the world, have them working uh, for slave wages, while those countries set up contracts with the Cuban dictatorship and provide the bulk of what should be the doctor's wages to the Cuban dictatorship, and it's billions of dollars. And the United States had set up, I think it was during the Bush administration, a policy that if doctors went to the U.S. Embassy and requested asylum, Cuban doctors, that they would be provided asylum and they would be able to uh, go to the United States. That was ended by Obama also in January 2017. Um, a couple things. Yanni, you came here with the wet foot, dry foot. Yeah. And, and no, you, no, I didn't. I'm sorry. Not, what? I did not come in a raft. I did you did not come in a raft, I know. the border of Mexico. Okay, but, so the, but, but that, that was, the rule yeah. did help you? Yes, okay. it did. <laughs> I knew you didn't come on a raft. Um, 
I waited one year and a day. Okay, so so and so then I could apply. They gave me a parole uh, first, and then a year and a day apply for my residence. So so John, um, she came in 2014. You said Obama. I think you said he ended that in like 2017. Uh, 17. Okay, so he 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 ruined the opportunity yeah. for many Cubans to come here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Um. I and actually that, had the misconception that it was not, and a lot of Cubans think this. I've heard them talking about it. They think that the one who did that was Trump, not Obama. And I was, I was wrong too. You were, yeah. When I met Yanni, she was under the impression yeah. that it was the other way, John. Yeah. Right. And no, it's not. It was, it was Obama. The thing is, in Miami, uh, the Cubans were very clear about that, and uh, you see it reflected in the counterintuitive uh, fact that the Cubans are the biggest Trump supporters in South Florida. And part of it is it wasn't that they were so much pro-Trump as anti-Obama and wanted to have a vote to punish the Democrats for their policies. And then when Trump, uh, during his administration, he returned Cuba to the list of state sponsors of terrorism. He began sanctioning high-ranking officials of the dictatorship, including uh, the Castro family, that those were very popular positions and you actually saw during 2020 uh the numbers of cubans not only cubans cubans venezuelans nicaraguans other victims of communism in the in the florida region uh their support for trump compared to 2016 exploded so where trump had done let's say somewhere like 55 to 60 percent of the cuban vote in 2016 he got in excess of 70, 75% of the Cuban vote in 2020. Okay. Very interesting. Um, Of course, historically, the Cuban, well, at least over the past, what is it? I know in 1999, uh, uh, Cubans played a big role in um, that that very controversial election. So Cubans have been very relevant politically to the United States uh, uh, political landscape for quite some time, haven't they, John? But yes, but the, again, the issue in the nineteen in the two thousand election was that the Clinton administration, in addition to tightening up the Cuban Adjustment Act, making it more difficult for Cubans to enter the United States, uh, returned to Leon Gonzalez. And you know, we're talking. There's been controversy now about you know the FBI raid on, on uh, the Trump residence in Palm Beach. But back in two thousand, uh, Janet Reno sent. Uh, men with machine guns and raided the home of a Cuban American family uh, because they were whole, they, because they were the ones caring for Elan Gonzalez and the Clinton administration wanted to return him to the Castro dictatorship, which they did, and they did it at armed gunpoint. And in hindsight, Yanni has very interesting. Um because she lived this back in 1999. You remember Elian Gonzalez getting so oh, famous. Yeah, it was very annoying. So, of course, she she was exposed, John, entirely to one side. I'm yeah. 38 years old, so I wasn't, you know, a complete adult during that time. But I do remember that was a big deal. In hindsight, John, how should the United States have handled that? Uh, they should have allowed uh, the family to push for the rights of the child in the courts but instead that was short-circuited because they wanted to 
normalize relations with the dictatorship. The Clinton administration in 2000, in 2000, Bill Clinton shook hands with Fidel Castro at the United Nations in New York, and they opened up uh, trade with Cuba. And they'd been trying, but you know, when they tried the first round in 93, 94, the regime's response was, uh, you know, another exodus. They had uh, reports of atrocities being committed, and then the shootdown of the Brothers to the Rescue planes in 96 shut that down. And uh, Clinton was forced to sign the Helms-Burton bill in 96. It was an election year, and it was a popular measure to be able to shore up Florida for him. But then as soon as he got into his second term, they started the outreach against to the dictatorship. And in 2000, with the return of Ilion, they opened up trade, and you had that infamous handshake of Fidel and, and, and Bill at the UN. Uh, you know, it's interesting John, is Trump, of course, shook hands with, what was it, Kim Jong-un, and, and he has a photo op, and people, you know, of course, Democrats would criticize him. Uh, well, I would criticize. I thought that was disgusting. However, at the same time, I would say, unlike Obama, he shook hands with Kim Jong-un, but he returned hmm. North Korea to the list of state terror sponsors, Okay, so originally belong on it. Okay, so Trump was clearly trying, had a, a motive that was pro-American and was trying to negotiate, whereas Clinton and then also Obama went to a baseball game with Raul Castro. The Democrats are clearly far more friendly to the Cuban regime. They're, friend, they're friendlier in style, as, as friendly as, as uh, Trump was, but in substance, they're much friendlier. So you have uh, Trump's genuflection before the North Korean dictator, but if you look at his policies, they were tightening and making things more difficult for North Korea. Okay. Um, Yanni just handed me a note. I did an episode last week with a, a very intelligent Cuban gentleman here in Louisville, Kentucky, Vladimir Aguilar. And he is is very confident there are high-ranking socialist um Members officials of officials or? within the Cuban government that frequently come to the United States, and he he believes Louisville is probably a destination of at least some, of course Miami, that still work for the Cuban government and kind of Cold War era spying type uh, uh, situation and influencing the uh, you know the uh, uh, politics here, but also some having you know uh, business arrangements with companies there in Cuba. He said the one guy here in Louisville owns some type of a shipping company and has an office set up there in Cuba and is just freely able to ship back and forth. And it's just very, very fishy. John, do you believe um, that's a crazy conspiracy theory or what? No, that's a pretty accurate assessment. Uh, the Cuban Intelligence Service trained by the KGB, the, uh, you did in, in posing the question. The Cuban Intelligence Service trained by the Soviet KGB, the East German Stasi, has an incredible uh, intelligence and counterintelligence service. They are networked around the world, and they have a special focus on the United States. They also have a number of entities to circumvent U.S. sanctions, and they've also been found to be operating here in the United States. In addition to that, Cuban spies have been found in the highest levels of the U.S. government. Uh, one of the more egregious examples that was a devastating, uh, had a devastating impact on the United States was that of Anna Belen Montes, 
she was a, a Puerto Rican background. She had spent 17 years at the Defense Intelligence Agency in the U.S. Pentagon with access to uh, in U.S. intelligence and also information on the means that that intelligence was uh, obtained that the director of the CIA did not have access to. And all that information was being pumped directly to the Cuban government for 17 years. She was arrested in 2001, uh, just after 9-11. She had been monitored for some time by the FBI who was trying to, they were trying to identify her Cuban handlers, but because of 9-11 and the fear that the intelligence she was providing to Havana would be used against the United States by, by the Taliban and others to attack the U.S. homeland, they arrested her and she's still in prison today. Uh, there were other cases at the CIA, Phil Agee, the, U the uh, State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, penetrated by Cuban spies. Wow. That's wild. So I guess it's too... And, the, and, the, and in the case of Ana Belen Montes, they specifically identified at least one U.S. soldier who died because of the information she was providing. Was it a, a plane was shot down? something like that no in this case it was uh he was in central america and they were providing information on troop movements so they were able to kill they killed a lot of soldiers but at least one of the soldiers was american i think most of them were uh, of the central american country in particular i think it might have been el salvador but i don't remember at the moment wow okay so Vladimir was very confident i was saying to him on the podcast cubans are so funny i get a kick out of cubans they're so proud of you it's married like, one. I married one. Um, but I think it's funny that they're so, they have such conviction. And I'm like, you sure you want to say this on a podcast? You sound like a conspiracy theorist. He's like, oh yeah, I know this. You know, he's not backing down at all. It's like they finally have the freedom to say what they want. And they're very proud of it. Well, they, they have the freedom to say it, but there's still consequences. Just because you're living in the United States doesn't mean they can't come after you and have something happen to you. It happens. So and they they pro, they Cubans know that really right, but they're still yes. they're still they 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 value it so much. Oftentimes, not all of them, Yanni, right? Maria, here in Louisville, we have multiple Cubans who are very outspoken, but they are not all. No, not all of them. No, many are afraid, and the and the fear is justifiable. Yeah. I have a few friends that go every year to Cuba, and they don't share anything at all against the system because of that. Because they're afraid of, you know, being marked. But I'll give you an example. There was um, one, and, and in terms of conspiracy theories, all I ask is, uh, if you think it's a conspiracy theory, Google Ana Belen Montes and see what pops up. Um, the other, the other uh, issue is Fidel Castro's bodyguard published a tell, defected and published a tell-all book called The Double Life of Fidel Castro. Mm -hmm. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Juan Hernando Sanchez. He lasted about a year after the book was published and died of a uh, illness. Uh, under myster people's... mysterious circumstances? No, it wasn't mysterious. The, the theory is that he, he was foolish. He was traveling to Spain and other places, and he probably ate or drank something, and that's how they got him. Um, but, uh, yeah, his book is a double life of Fidel Castro and he was able to provide firsthand anecdotes. One of the more outrageous ones, uh, in the book was about the Mariel boat lift 
where Fidel Castro was humiliated because hundreds of thousands of Cubans that had grown up in the revolution were leaving. So to taint that exodus, he brought in lists of uh, folks in prison. And then personally, Fidel Castro personally went through with a pen highlighting murderers, rapists, uh, psychopaths, mental patients, and put them on the boats to the United States. So not only did he probably make up some some BS charges and say that a lot of the people who were leaving were criminals already, he actually put murders and rapists on those boats. Yes, and did it personally. Didn't didn't uh, provide it to some staffer. He actually did it personally, according to uh, Mr. Fernando Sanchez in his book. And being Fidel Castro's personal bodyguard, and there's plenty of uh, photographic evidence to substantiate that claim, um, he would know. Yanni, you and, were- obviously, and obviously also the links of Fidel Castro with uh, drug traffickers and drug cartels. Yeah. Yanni, you and I both read that book, I think, right? Which book? The book by the bodyguard. Oh, yeah. Double Life of Fidel Castro yeah. by Juan Fernando Sanchez. So so they did. They, no, I don't think that's the one that we read. Wait, did, did, did this bodyguard guy write multiple books, John? No, no. We read he it. Didn't live long, he didn't live long enough. Yanni, we read that book. No, that's not the one that we read. What do you mean? It has to be. It's not. There, There's not many uh, Fidel Castro uh, bodyguards that escaped and then wrote a book, I don't think. Okay, maybe. Might be. Yeah, yeah we read the book. And they did mention in there the relations with countries such as North Korea and the, the manufacturing, manufacturing of like methamphetamines, things like that. Right, John? Yeah, well, I mean, we just saw it now with Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Uh, all the state sponsors of terrorism came out to attack her visit. Iran, North Korea... Cuba, um, Syria, and they're all allied together in their anti-Americanism and hostility to U.S. interests. Anytime Mexico is mentioned in the news, Yanni makes sure to mention, so Yanni, you're nodding, that is the book we read, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was a great book. I enjoyed it. I just have to check that. Anyway. Yeah, Yanni doesn't. That's good. She, she questions everything. It's a good thing. Okay, so anytime Mexico comes up in the news, Yanni makes sure to basically say, don't listen to anything that guy, the, what is it, the president of Mexico says. AMLO. He's a, I'm sorry? AMLO. AMLO. So he's, he's a, friend, a, friend of, friend of Cu- a friend of Cuba. No, friend of the, friend of the Castros. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You differentiate that. You're sure to say it's yeah. different. The than, suffering. Yes. It's, they've destroyed Cuba. There's, anybody who's a friend of the Castro's is no friend of Cuba. Uh, yeah. Very very well put, Yana. You'd agree? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a, a very fair distinction. But um, do you feel the... Right now, what is there an exchange? What is this question, Yanni? There's an exchange yeah, of, when, of... My question was like, because... Q, um, so Cuba is receiving help right now from the Mexican government through this Obrador guy. So my question was, uh, is that an exchange for healthcare workers maybe? What is the interest yes. behind it? Yes, they, the, well, publicly the, the claim is that they're providing hard currency to Cuba in exchange for Cuban doctors. Um, but obviously there is a... Uh, 
I think with the case of Mexico, the case of Venezuela, I think now you're going to see with Colombia, with Petro, the former M-19 terrorist guerrilla, now president of Colombia, a uh, close ally of the Cuban government. You must remember the M-19 terrorist group back in 82 was receiving money from drug traffickers and was being facilitated by Havana. That's why Cuba was initially put on the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Um, so you have these countries are going to be providing hard currency. They may use the doctors as a way to justify it, but they will be doing what they can to keep Cuba, the Cuban dictatorship afloat. Okay. Um, my friend Hector was recently, <laughs> we attended a baptism a couple weeks ago. And my friend Hector, very knowledgeable about South American, Central American uh, uh, po politics, was just running down a list of the basically Marxist leaders. All You mentioned Colombia, Chile. What, Chile. It's, I mean, it just goes on. It's not just the ones that I'm familiar with. I, I'm just reading that Chile is updating its constitution. Yeah, so they're rewriting <laughs> things. Um, oh, yeah. Are there any exceptions, John? Um, right now, the exceptions would be Panama, Costa Rica, um, Paraguay, Paraguay, um, Uruguay, Ecuador, maybe Uruguay. Yep. Um, and, and then obviously Brazil, but it's looking like Lula will probably win in the upcoming elections later this year, which will be a disaster. So the major... Uh, countries in Latin America, Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, which has been a military strategic ally of the United States for decades, is now on the other side. Uh, and Mexico with AMLO, uh, Nicaragua with uh, the Sandinistas under Daniel Ortega, which has also set up, there's a Russian base there now, Russian tanks on the ground. Uh, yeah, the, the situation in the hemisphere is uh, very hostile to U.S. interests. In hindsight, can most of that Marxist pres presence down south, of course, underneath the United States, be credited, you think, to Fidel Castro? Yes. Uh, Fidel Castro had a vision to turn the Andes into the Sierra Maestra of the Americas. The Sierra Maestra was what Fidel Castro and his guerrillas uh, grouped to overthrow Fulgencio Batista, and his vision was to do the same thing across South America and Central America. So, yes. <laughs> not, not very encouraging. No. No, it's been a long-term objective of the regime, and it, it took, uh, it was posthumous to Fidel Castro's death, but they've largely achieved that objective. So, I know at one time, what was about half of the world's population was under socialist rules, something like that. Would you say right now socialism globally is on an uptick? It is, and it's, and it's never been really a true on a downtick because communist China has, you know, over a billion people. And then you throw in North Korea, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and now I would say you could throw in uh, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua straight-up Marxist uh, regimes. Where, where does Canada fall on that? Oh, I would still put Canada under being a, a democracy. You still have opposition parties. Um, 
when when Canada becomes something like Cuba or Nicaragua, you'll know because the uh, the conservative parties would be outlawed. There would only be uh, government newspapers run by Pierre Trudeau, and kids would have to be going up in class in third grade screaming that they're going to be like uh, Trudeau, for example. Okay. Um, Yanni, did, did we have one more question we were going to get to? Um, I think we touched on the energy yes. crisis. Um, John, is there anything in your opinion? I yeah. do have a question. Okay, yes, Yanni. What, what do you think will be, we will be seeing in the next few years? <laughs> Yanni's like, always trying it, to figure out if the regime's going to fall. Is there any similarities with the USSR that we're seeing? The system, like... What is happening to Cuba? She's wanting to know if the equivalent of the Berlin Wall falling is if getting this, ready to happen. Yes. If there's anything... Any indicators? Yes. <laughs> no, I think the, the indicators are that you have the death of the first generation of revolutionary leadership. With that, with that passing, we have to see what the, sec the willingness of the second generation to murder to carry out Tiananmen Square style massacres that the first generation was willing to do. I mean, we must remember in 1989, one of the few governments that supported the Tiananmen Square massacres openly uh, was Cuba. And that was a message to the Cuban people. And we did see this past July 11th, uh, Cuban paramilitary forces going to the streets, firing on unarmed protesters. And the show trials continue. Uh, political show trials started in July of last year, and they're still going on today with people being sentenced to 10, 20, 30 years in prison for peacefully protesting. So there is a willingness in the regime to commit atrocities, to hang on to power. The question is, when that leadership passes from the scene, will the new generation have a similar willingness to maintain control? And the reason that they do is that they have Swiss bank accounts. They use the Cuban people essentially as hostages uh, with the international community, which is one of the reasons why we started a petition. Um, we'd already put out in previous statements a call for this, but we're in light of what's happened in Matanzas, we're highlighting this, a petition for emergency, for emergency humanitarian corridor for Cubans, highlighting the internal blockade in Cuba created by the dictatorship highlighting the fact that they have blocked uh, humanitarian aid from being received by Cubans. We're calling the international community to set up an international corridor to directly provide assistance to Cubans, knowing that the uh, Castro regime's record is absolutely horrible. We're also calling on the International Committee of the Red Cross to be granted access to Cuba's prison, something that has not occurred since 1989. Okay. Yeah. I also have another question. I had a coworker the other day asking me how, how if if I could recommend any book about Cuban history mm. that it was written before the 1959, and I did not have an in answer an answer for him because I myself haven't read any book of history before 1959. Do you know any that? You could recommend it to me, and then I could recommend it to my friend. Well, in terms of the Cuban Republic, I would recommend uh, Luis Aguilar León's Prologue to Revolution, 1933. It's very good. For an overall history of Cuba, from 
the native peoples to the present day, I would recommend Hugh Thomas, uh, a British aristocrat who wrote an exhaustive history of Cuba uh, called Cuba, or the, let me make sure I have the right, the precise title, Cuba or the Pursuit of Freedom, I think is the, the title, but let me quickly look it up for you. But I, I'd recommend those two books if you want to get a, a good idea. Um, yes, Cuba, The Pursuit of Freedom, and I guess they have uh, a more recent edition, which is retitled Cuba, A History by Hugh Thomas. And then the other one, which would be more difficult to come by, by Luis Aguilar Leon, a Cuban uh, professor who his story, and I actually knew Luis Aguilar Leon, he was a professor and historian and a classmate of Fidel Castro's uh, early on when Castro was still uh, claiming to be democratic. Uh, the story I heard was that they actually shared, they were on a, a co-panelist on a, a television program, and Luis Aguilar destroyed Fidel on the program, and he had to get on a plane and leave the country <laughs> afterwards. Because basically he was saying, you know, you're, which is it? Are you a fool or are you a demagogue <laughs> in terms of what you're doing? And he was able to outline the steps that were being taken to undermine. Uh, they were in contradiction to the publicly claimed uh, aims of installing democracy in Cuba after the fall of Batista and erecting a, a dictatorship and showing the contradictions. He exposed Fidel Castro and he had to get out of the country as a result. But he wrote a, an important book about the Cuban Republic and also especially the 1930s, which is an important period in Cuban history because the, the communists basically argue that Cuba before 1959 was a playground of the United States, being controlled by the United States. But the reality is that if you look at the Cuban Republic from 1902 to 1959, you find a country that when it comes into existence in 1902, yes, it comes into existence with an asterisk called the Platt Amendment that from 1902-1933 gave the United States the right to intervene in Cuban internal Cuban political affairs. But by 1933, the Cubans, uh, led by Ramon Grau San Martin, um, push and get that uh, amendment to the Cuban Constitution abrogated. And Cubans from 1933 through 1959, you actually do have an authentically independent Cuba, uh, which is able to look out for its own interest. And you have also a Cuba that in the night, now this isn't in. Luis Aguilar Leon's book, but I also recommend looking. If you go to our uh, Center for Free Cuba's uh, YouTube account, we actually have a speech by Guy Perez Cisneros in 1948 at the United Nations uh, highlighting the Cuban role in the establishment of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the UN Human Rights Committee. That the communists tried to claim that human rights is something alien to Cubans, but actually Cubans played a role in the drafting of the document and in the creation of that institution at the UN and also in the OAS, which predates the UN Human Rights Declaration with an American Declaration of Rights and Duties. But we have on our on our YouTube account, uh, Guy Pettis Cisneros giving his speech at the UN on the day that the measure was being passed and, and showing the, the participation of Cubans in that. 
Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, John, are you okay on time? Can I uh, fire a couple more question, quick questions at you? Sure. Okay. Um, you mentioned that there are, uh, due to the, what was it, July 11th, 2021 protests uh, across the island of Cuba, there are still tro- show trials going on now uh, related to those incidents. Um, the topic of show trials um, is fascinating to me. I believe some dictators throughout history have had show trials prior to someone to locking someone up. Um, I, I think Stalin did not. Um, no, Stalin did. Stalin's show trials are notorious. Okay. Okay. Um, so if it's all right, if someone's listening and they're unfamiliar with what a show trial is, could you summarize what a show trial is? Uh, uh, why there's show trials going on right now relative to July 11th, 2021, and why they are, I guess most dictatorships do in fact have show trials? Well, the communist ones do, and, and also the Nazi regime, totalitarian dictatorships do because it's a measure. The trial in, in Anglo-American tradition, the idea of trial is to get to the truth of guilt or innocence and apply justice. A show trial is the complete opposite. A show trial, in in the case of Stalin or Hitler or the Castros, is to send a message to the populace. And the message is one of terror. And what happened on July 11th that caught the regime off guard placed fear into the ranks of the dictatorship. And what they're doing now is sending a message to the Cubans that if you dare peacefully assemble to peacefully protest, we will destroy your life. We will send you away for 20, 30 years in prison. Your kids will not be able to go to college. Uh, you will be a pariah. So there are people who have been held in a cell in Cuba since July 11th, 2021, or sometime shortly thereafter, maybe. And now everyone, all their family, all their friends, everyone in the on the island knows that these trials are occurring and they're saying, what's going to happen to Juan? We're going to see what his sentence is. So they make it very public. They come forward. Exactly. They, they make exactly. up, they make up charges. Maybe they're somewhat accurate charges. Maybe they're entirely bullshit. Um, and then they shame them. And then they actually, uh, the main kicker probably is then they actually have to serve a 30 year sentence or whatever it is. Exactly. Exactly. Not spot on. Not, not very humane. Not at all, but it is good for maintaining power in an absolute dictatorship. Wow. God, that, that doesn't sound, that does sound, yeah, effective for, for maintaining power, I would imagine. I guess one of the chinks in the armor of the Cuban regime is for some reason they allowed internet all across the island and people have had access to Facebook and things like that uh, for quite some time now. Of course, in North Korea, they don't do that, but why did they allow internet in the first place? Well, they allowed internet. Well, first off, they didn't allow it for many years. The internet with wide access has only been available for the last four years. And it's due to uh, the commercial interest. And also, you know, you have trying to get this tourist industry running in Cuba with visitors and having zero internet connectivity, not good for business for the military conglomerate. So they started lying more and also the scrutiny. You're claiming that the people in Cuba are free, but they don't have access to, <laughs> to the internet. So what, what did they do? They allowed it. Things got out of control in July. 
So now they've passed new laws that if you're sharing information that portrays the Cuban government in a negative light over the internet, uh, with the new penal code that just came online in May, uh, that that could not only be a 10, 20, 30 year prison sentence, but under certain circumstances, it could be a death penalty. Yanni, have you seen any people in Cuba sharing? And obviously, I'm not trying to get anyone in trouble. I don't, you know, that's mm-hmm. the last thing I would want. But do people commonly share uh, um, images or messages that are negatively portraying the Cuban yes, regime? They're doing it right now. And they don't care. It seems like they don't care at this point. Okay. I have a few friends that share a bunch of like memes. Anti-Cuban like, regime yeah, memes. And making they're, they're, fun of it. And they're definitely in Cuba. So maybe yeah. the Cuban uh, government right now, John, is relatively well, they very do weak. It, they, they don't do have it, enough energy. to. They do it very smartly. They don't actually say names, but everybody knows what they're talking about. So like they just, you know, it's very figurative, but everybody knows. Hmm. They don't do it expressively. Oh, the system. But they sucks, could still get in trouble. Maybe the government doesn't have time to chase after yeah, every single one of those people. Yeah, I don't think they can chase every single person right now. Right, they they can chase after everyone, but they target specific high-profile cases to instill fear in the rest, and then get compl- their objective is compliance, and compliance is arrived at through terror, hence the show trials. Okay, John Suarez uh, from the Center for a Free Cuba. John, we really appreciate you joining us for the episode again today. Before we wrap things up, if someone's listening and they're a Cuban-American or they're just fascinated by Cuba, do you have any type of specific call to action? How could someone help? And also any, anything else you want to mention before we wrap the episode up? Well, on change.org, we do have that petition circulating, Petition for Emergency Humanitarian Corridor for Cubans. Um, and they're also welcome to visit our website, cubacenter.org. Uh, and there's forms there where you can get on to our mailing list. Okay, great stuff. Uh, as always, John, I really appreciate you joining me for the episode. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Also want to thank everyone for tuning in to The Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we will have another episode out soon. Mm-hmm.